Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. Really? Because your name says Alina. Ugh, we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Te Swetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmikulu. And today's text, Shadow and Bone, is set in a fantasy land mm-hmm. that's sort of Europe, yeah. Russia, Iceland, and China, kinda. kinda. So we don't really have a territorial acknowledgement for it today. Although it is all about territory and control and colonization mm-hmm. in like a million different ways. Oh, for sure. And then there's that fun racism angle that they introduce into the TV show for seemingly no apparent reason. Yeah, I was going to talk. I want to talk about the what that's about, because there seems yeah. to be no payoff. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Brenna, we are covering another fantasy text. I'm sorry to report that there is plenty of walking. So I know that this was difficult <laughs> so for much you. walking. I don't know what it is. You know, Joe, I have no problem with the concept of fantasy fandom. And I don't like I don't think it's a lesser form or anything. It's just aggressively not for me. I was actually okay with the books in both cases. Like, okay. First of all, there was a lot of prep for today's episode. Can I get some credit? Because we had to read Shadow and Bone, we had to read Six of Crows, and we had to watch eight episodes of a fantasy series. That's Mm -hmm. a lot for me. (laughs) The book is fine. It's when I get to the TV show, and it's that combination of walking, yes, as I've complained about before, and lore. I don't care about, I don't care about your lore, and I don't want to learn your fictional backstory and i i don't want there to be so many pieces to hold together in my brain and i know for some people like that is just the joy like getting lost in a world like this is the absolute joy but it honestly just Mm -hmm. makes me tired so gosh (laughs) you are such a curmudgeon i love this idea that the minute we take you out of your comfort zone of realist ya you start pouting and complaining (laughs) like a child brenna that's not entirely true like it's a bad thing and i think these (laughs) (laughs) that's not entirely true i've really enjoyed it when we've done nonfiction. i really enjoy it when we move into like texts that are set elsewhere Mm -hmm. i probably do have a comfort zone i think it's larger than you're giving me credit for but like i just think that particularly fantasy television is boring and i don't (laughs) i can't I just, I fell asleep before the end of every single episode of this series until episode six. I just, I don't know. I don't know. It ain't for me. And it's not like I don't try. You can take me to science fiction. (laughs) That's fine. You can take me to hard SF, soft SF. There's something about fantasy fantasy, in particular that I just, I just find it boring. That's all it is. (sighs) I just find it boring. And like, (laughs) as I said, I actually didn't find the books too bad. I thought Six of Crows was like just way longer than it needed to be. But Mm. in general, I didn't find the books too bad. But there's something about having to watch it on screen that just destroys me. And I know I'm in the minority. And I know I piss off our audience every time I say this. But just stop walking and talking. I don't care. Well, I I do love that you're saying this all, you know, right off the top. Welcome (laughs) any new listeners who possibly check this out. Thank you so much for dipping your toe in. We'll never see you again. I happen to quite enjoy this, and I don't know that I'm more predisposed to liking fantasy than you are. I definitely think that I enjoy things with, like, magic and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the stuff with the the fabricators and the healers. All of that kind of stuff I actually quite enjoyed, and I thought that it was fairly well constructed. I am with you. It's a lot to read two very lengthy tomes of books and try to keep all these characters straight and then also watch eight hours of TV. I do think the next time we tackle something that's ambitious like this, Mm -hmm. I would like to challenge you to watch the show first. Because you always have this thing where you go and you say, oh, I didn't like the show or I didn't like the movie. And part of me is like, okay, I think you need to start alternating between reading the book or watching the show or the movie first. I don't always dislike the movie. I do always dislike fantasy movies. That's a fair (laughs) point. I do. (laughs) 
made my defense so much walking. Um, but I also think, you know, there are some choices that are being made here in this adaptation. Like, I don't understand why this needed to be a TV series. Like, I think this could have been oh, a very you are good film. Me with this. Get out of no, town. No. Why does it need to be not. eight hours? Okay, first of all, we need to tell people the plot because there are so many extraneous nonsense parts that don't need to be in this series. Like, what is Nina doing in this whole series? Nobody knows what that means because we haven't done the plot yet. So let's rewind. <laughs> <laughs> and do the plot, and then I'll explain to you why it would have been a perfectly fine two-hour movie. Okay, I'll just, uh, I'll check out, and I'll come back in about two hours. How's that? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I The plot is, okay, so we have our protagonist, Alina Starkov. She is the chosen one. Yes. She, she and her friend Mal grow up at an orphanage. They live in Ravka, which is sort of like fantasy Russia, basically. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the story, they're like on this mission- they uh, have to go through the fold, which is this like area of kind of nothingness that cuts Ravka off from the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah, it's like a dark rift that was created by almost like a dark wizard back in the day. And yeah, it separates the lands. It has caused a lot of turmoil because there are creatures that don't allow safe passage through mm-hmm. it. And everybody just kind of lives in fear and concern about, okay, is there going to be a way to get rid of this? And there are legends that there will be a sun seer who will come out of mythology and they will destroy this fold and kind of bring peace and unity to the land. And what we learn when we switch over and read Six of Crows, which we're not going to talk about the plot at length, but what you learn is that although um, Shadow and Bone is basically exclusively told from the Ravkin point of view, Mm Mm-hmm. Everybody is really plagued by this fold. Uh, It makes it impossible for sort of trade to happen and for people to move between places, obviously, safely. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're crossing this thing and the Volcra, which are the monsters that live in this space, they attack Mal and Alina freaks out and rescues Mal. But in the process, she displays that she is a Grisha, which is the word for someone with magical powers, basically. Yeah. And her Grisha power appears to be to summon light, which suggests that she is the sun summoner of legend. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the story begins. She and Mal end up separated because she's taken to this place called the Little Palace to learn how to use her powers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she meets the Darkling, who we will find out eventually is the dark wizard who caused the fold in the first place. Spoilers. (laughs) He convinces her that she will be like the key to undoing the fold. And Mm because she doesn't realize at that point that he's the person who caused it. And so she sort of falls in love-ish with him um, and thinks that she's going to be able to like save society. But she gets told by her tutor, who, by the way, in the film, my favorite character, Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, she's great. Madame Hooch from the Harry Potter movie. Zoe Wanamaker. You know what? I just always enjoy her on screen. She's got such an expressive face. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so Bagra, her tutor, um, warns her that she needs to flee. And it turns out that Bagra is actually the Darkling's mother. So Alina does flee. And in her fleeing, she ends up crossing paths again with Mal because he was in the palace to tell the Darkling about this stag Darkling wants to kill this stag because he wants to use it as an amplifier, which is when you like fuse bone onto uh, Grisha and then they have extra powers. It's like a big antenna satellite dish for magic. (laughs) And (laughs) and Alina and Mal together find the stag and realize that they are actually in love with each other. Well, Alina's known that all along, but Mal finally clues in. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he's a dum-dum. He's a dum-dum. That's sort of his handsome dum-dum is his, is his role in the series. She refuses to kill the stag. She has this whole moment of like, this isn't really the way I should get my powers by destroying this other being. And the mm. stag is like, I see you and we are one. And then the We're Darkling kills the yeah. stag. Yeah. yeah. It's a moment of big tragedy. It's awful, actually. It's really sad. And the whole thing is sad. And then so the Darkling now has Alina... He forces the stag's antlers on her, which basically means that, like, he controls her amplifier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once they're on this 
mission to go back to the Unsea. The Darkling has Mal prisoner, and he's like, if you don't help me do what I want to do, protect the ship during our crossing, then uh, I'm going to kill Mal. So she does. But what he does on the crossing, the Darkling, is he kills, like he destroys an entire town just to show how much power he has. And then so she discovers that through the power of love, she can actually overthrow the Darkling. So she does. Uh, and she It's not quite that. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, so she makes a bubble of light protection for herself and Mal, which engulfs the rest of the ship in darkness. So the Volcra come and they take the Darkling. She thinks, except we're not sure because of course it's a series and this is the end of a series, so it's mm-hmm. letting us know what's happening next. But it's the love of Mal that grants her the strength she needs so to break free from the amplifier or at least to disconnect the Darkling's right. power from her amplifier. They leave the ship and find passage across the sea mm-hmm. separately and so they have escaped but for how long yes happy uh, i mean as always you went a little more granular than i think you needed to but yes yeah overall. oh my god i left out like 90 percent of the characters by the way and this is why i don't like fantasy <laughs> oh my goodness yeah i will say one other important character of note that i particularly liked is the character of jenya i knew you were gonna say that betrayer betrayer well and this is the thing so we haven't actually said this is a book series written by lee bardugo and i feel like we need to recognize that well in a lot of senses this is a fairly conventional semi-love triangle fantasy series where a chosen one discovers their power and goes on an epic journey there are two moments that i think set at least this first book apart. And that is the reveal that the Darkling is not a romantic interest because Mm -hmm. he is the true villain. But then also for me, it's that moment when we discover that Jenya has, yes, betrayed her friendship. So she's she has a unique power that allows her to make people over. So she typically uses her powers on the queen, but then she also uses them on Alina to make her appear more ready for the court to see Yeah, she's a tailor. Thank you. Yeah, she's a tailor. And I love that Alina ends up confiding in her because she feels completely disconnected from the other Grisha. She's not fitting in because, of course, she's like, I don't want to have these powers, blah, 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 all of that Mm -hmm. usual nonsense. And I love the friendship that develops between them. And then when it gets undercut with this reveal that Jenya has actually been working with the Darkling and the reasons why she does it, because she's been sexually abused by the king, she's been physically and mentally abused by the queen, and this was her way out of indentured servitude, I just thought, oh wow, this is kind of serious stuff for this YA book. And I do get the impression we'll get to see more of the storyline down the road because, of course, Jenya is not killed. She's still active somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the Darkling, of course, is still active in somewhere. But I liked a lot of the maturity aspects of this amidst the walking and the lore. Yeah, yeah. I think Bardugo obviously has some really strong interest in trauma and how trauma impacts character. We see that a lot in Six of Crows. We're not going to go through a plot summary of Six of Crows. This is technically an adaptation of both books, but only Mm -hmm. insofar as the characters from Six of Crows make their way into the TV series. So the characters are Kaz Brecker and Inaj and Matthias and Nina and Wylan. I guess those are the ones who make it over. And Jesper. Oh, yeah, and Jesper. And basically, with the exception of Nina and Matthias in this version of the story, they're like a little mini crime syndicate, basically, and they're on a heist. Mm -hmm. But the heist happens to involve the Sun Summoner in the TV series. Yes. That book, though, Six of Crows, I think is even more interested in trauma, in particular sexual trauma and violence. And it's something that I actually, I was talking to you about earlier. It's like, to me, Six of Crows does not feel like a YA at all. (laughs) Six of Crows very much feels, and this is my theory that I floated by Joe, which is Six of Crows feels like Leah Bardugo wanted to write an adult novel in the same universe as Shadow and Bone, and her publishers were like, nah. So she she just rejigged it so that everybody is technically a teenager. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't work once you start to think about it, because, yeah, every once in a while, they'll say 17, 16, (laughs) but the things that they are doing are so mature adult that you can't reconcile the two. 
Well, and their life experiences. Like, if you actually plotted out their life experiences, they've got to have at least 20 years each of what they've been doing (laughs) in their 17-year-old bodies. So I'm kind of fascinated by that too. Like, I think Bardugo is very interested in having some much more complex conversations in this space than there's usually space for. And I do give her credit for that. Um, And I do think the books themselves are compelling. Like, I think they're really interesting. And I yeah. I think that she's good at pacing, maybe less so in Six of Crows, which does have a tendency to drag. But Shadow and Bone is an incredibly, I think, fast moving for a novel of this type, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, no, I give a lot of credit to the books. I think that she's, um, I think she is trying to do something interesting. There are some tropes that I find exhausting. So like, before mm-hmm. the Darkling is unmasked, we have that whole thing of like, it's so sexy that he could hurt me. He's so violent yeah. and I want to kiss on his face. Um, and you know, we never know what the behind the scenes conversations are, right? Like, where does the impetus for those tropes come from? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, I often wonder if publishers just think that that's what people want to read or editors oh, sure. think that's what people want to read. Yeah, like we read Divergent, we read The Hunger Games, and we read Twilight. And we would like to see all of the following tropes from this checklist incorporated into your new YA fantasy romance novel. In the case of this book, I don't think the romance with Alina and the Darkling is at all persuasive. Like, I kept expecting to find out that Alina was faking it all along because she knew there was something up, you know, like I didn't, it felt Mm. very kind of tacked on, like it felt sort of like I'm going through some motions here. Interesting. I believed it up to a certain point, but I took it to be, this is the first time that someone has taken an interest in me and Mm. is actually treating me with kindness and respect. Like there's a lot with Mal where he treats her like a friend and- Or a little sister. Yeah, and he doesn't acknowledge what she actually means to him. And it's not until they're separated, of course, that he begins to realize the extent of his feelings. But because the book is written only from Alina's perspective, unlike the TV show, which bounces Mm -hmm. around and gives us a lot of interiority of all these other characters. Mm -hmm. In the book, it's very much Alina saying, oh, you know, I really miss this person who I feel like I've realized I've come to love. But also, here's somebody else who is dark and mysterious, but has power and respects Mm -hmm. me and treats me like a valuable asset for the first time. Because her life is not great before she is discovered to be the most important person in this universe. Well, yeah, and I will give credit to the TV series. I think a real strength of it is getting to see Mal's interior life. I think that's a real strength of the series because his motivations are often... Well, we only knew, know them through Alina's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And so we make assumptions about Mal based on Alina's perspective that aren't really helpful to understanding his motivations. And so right. in the TV series, getting to see what he's doing while Alina is at the palace, I think is incredibly helpful um, mm-hmm. to fleshing out that character. And I'm a lot more sympathetic to the Mal of the TV series than I am to the Mal of the book, who just is very much a characteristic yeah. YA handsome dum-dum. Yes, indeed. (laughs) It's not really until they hit the road on the lookout for the stag that we get any kind of sense of who Mal really is as a character. And of course, that's kind of a problem for Alina's motivation because you're kind of like, well, this is a kind of a childhood crush. Like, why? Why does it hold the kind of power over you that it does for the first two thirds of the book? And then in the final mm-hmm. third, you're like, oh, well, there's actually like quite a lot of relationship and history here. Right. But because of the perspective choice, Bardugo doesn't have an opportunity to tell you that until quite late in the in the book, unfortunately. Whereas the TV series does make very effective use of flashback to yeah. show us their relationship together at, in childhood. Mm-hmm. See, yeah. I can give credit, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so can we talk a little bit about this fantasy world as a bit of a construct? So it's not just that there are people with different powers, but like, I'm intrigued by how militaristic this is. Mm. And I can't help but wonder, it, I only just discovered this when I pulled up the Wikipedia page, that Lee Bardugo is an Israeli-American writer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I can't help but wonder if, because so much of this book is very... European feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all I have. Oh, that's you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's very much... I don't know. I was also struck by that. 
we're in a fantasy world that is very much anchored around military might, right? Mm -hmm. And so magic is useful only insofar as it progresses the aims of the state, or in the case of the Darkling, your attempt to subvert the state, right? Right. Which I think is pretty interesting, because I feel like often we have magical narratives where the magic is subversive, and the magic is not subversive in this world. The magic Mm -mm. is like... As I say, it's a power of the state, um, and it's been it's been brought into the state. And what's interesting, I think, are the Fjordans, which are, I mean, it's basically Iceland, Finland, yes. Northern Europe, right? Mm-hmm. And they oppose the use of magic in any form. When they find a Grisha, they arrest them. And then kill them. <laughs> and they put them on trial in quotation marks, and then they kill them, right? So there's this idea that magic is seen as either useful from a state perspective in Rivka, or it's absolutely outlawed in Fjordan, or it's like in Ketterdam, it becomes this sort of like way to, I guess, organize your power, but it's it's kept quiet, right? Because Ketterdam is bleak. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be Amsterdam, but it's weird. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, I, it felt like a cross between Amsterdam and then also somewhere in the UK, like London. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I got very like 1930s New York vibes, too. Like there's something very mm. like, it's it's a down on its luck kind of city, right? Like, yes, the people who run it are crime lords. Yeah, yeah. all crime lords. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of sex work. And mm-hmm. I found it interesting that a lot of the Grisha end up being employed in one of those two lines of work, right? Like, mm-hmm. so it's a bit of a lawless town, which is an interesting juxtaposition between, you know, Pyrda, which is like no magic ever, except of course, there's like the fun reveal that everything in their ice palace is actually made from Grisha. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, so you're just hypocrites. Got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then of course, in Ravka, it's like, these are servants of the state, but also, if anything was to happen to topple the balance of power, the idea is that the Grisha would become, they'd be almost treated the same way as they are in Firda, where it's like, oh, we don't like these people. The only reason that they're here is to help protect us. If they're not doing that, then we don't want them. Yeah, the idea is definitely that the Grisha are always a threat, and it's whether the state has co-opted the threat or not, mm-hmm. which I guess is why this series is so militaristic. Right. And I wonder if this is something that doesn't quite click with me. It's easy to kind of forget that in the book, because so much of the time you're just in the palace with Alina and you're kind of more caught up in sort of palace intrigue than you are in the military might. But in Mm -hmm. the TV series, it's like, there's soldiers all the time, all the time soldiers. And guess what? They're walking. But all the time, (laughs) soldiers. And there's a real animosity in the TV series between the first army, which are traditional soldiers and the second army right. which are the grisha soldiers mm-hmm. and i didn't get the sense of that animosity in the book no, at all it kind of surprised right. me when it appeared in the series this may seem uh <laughs> this could get me into trouble a little bit this also feels like we've taken arguably the least interesting but most powerful character and made them the protagonist as opposed mm-hmm. to Like, what would this book series look like from the perspective of someone else, as opposed Mm -hmm. to the person who is at the center of it? Like, I know that we've come down really hard on particularly fantasy romance authors like Cassandra Clare, like Stephanie Meyer, about how they only want to play in this same world and revisit it and write endless sequels and remakes and side stories and that kind of stuff. But I actually do feel like this world is complicated enough that I would have Mm -hmm. loved to have seen this story from someone else's perspective and not Alina's. Yeah, I agree completely. It's a problem with the focalization. It's like we run into this so often, right? That the character we spend the most time with is not the most interesting (laughs) character and it's Mm -hmm. frustrating. The -hmm. character who I am most interested in and one thing I did like about the TV series was giving a little bit more attention to Zoya because I think she's really interesting. So Zoya is one of the uh, Grisha and she hates Alina. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Hates her, right? Because she wasn't really raised to be a Grisha and she's not part of this world. I'm fascinated by her as a character. Like, what is so threatening to her? In in the book, she's just like generic mean girl. Oh, yeah. She has a crush on Mal. And yeah. that's it. And yeah. you're like, oh, there's not more? Okay. 
<laughs> but then she appears in Six of Crows. She's really the only connection to Shadow of Bone within Six of Crows. She appears there. And so when, when we get her in the TV series and she has kind of this cool turn in the last episode, mm-hmm. I was like, now that's a character who I'm interested in all of a sudden. Like, I want to know more about her. And I think, you know, for better or for worse, and it just depends on your perspective and what you look for in this kind of text, Alina is not a complicated person, right? No, because she's almost lived too sheltered a life. Yeah. Because she wanted to remain with Mao, so she kicked her Grecianness to the curb by sheer will so that it wouldn't get discovered. And as a result, she's lived this very boring kid sister life to stay close to the man that she loves, which is... Mm-hmm fine if you're a teen girl i'm sure because it's Mm -hmm. all very romantic and then for the rest of us we're like girl no (laughs) (laughs) and obviously that's what the book series is going to do right is it makes her equal i was actually really taken with the climax of shadow and bone where and this is the reason i scoffed is i don't agree with your statement that it's her love of Mal that ends up unlocking her power. To me, it's actually her realization that she is the most powerful person by virtue of, you know, some mysterious connection she has with the stag. But the stag reveals to her, you are not imprisoned by this, you are emboldened by our connection, by your own interior power. And she uses that, yes, to save Mal, but I don't read it as because Mal's in danger, she needs to do this. Like, That's the inciting incident, but I don't think it's how she actually unlocks her true potential. Maybe I don't disagree with you, but I don't think she would have any reason to try to unlock her potential if she wasn't rescuing Mal. Like, she clearly won't come to her own defense at any point. Which, again, is a a trope and a frustrating one that we've talked about before. Um, But, Mm -hmm. like, what if one of these saved themselves? Just (laughs) just what if? (laughs) Or didn't need any kind of romantic love interest. Yeah. I will say I actually quite enjoy the characters from Six of Crow. Me because, too. Well, as we've said, if they have more adult characteristics and therefore mm-hmm. they are more nuanced and complicated. I was super disappointed when I was like a third of the way through Six of Crows and you texted me and you were like, don't get excited. The Ice Palace isn't in the TV series. I was like, mm-hmm. no, this is the thing I want to see realized on screen the most. And I'm sure they'll do it in some future season because how could you not? It's going to be oh, amazing sure. to look at. I'm very intrigued to see where this all goes in terms of the TV show, because by introducing these characters, they've now unlocked the opportunity to do the Ice Palace heist, which is, yes, like, Mm -hmm. just imagining how that's going to play out visually as a TV show is is so exciting. But also, they still have two more books of Shadow and Bone that they're going to have to follow. (laughs) This is my issue, right? And you know what? It's ultimately because I was a lot less interested in the story of Shadow and Bone than I was in what was going on in Six of Crows. Mm-hmm. But to me, Six of Crows is the obvious setup for a TV series. You could put these these people through a different heist every season. It could go it could mm. go forever, right? And even though there's only two books, there just seems to be infinite possibility because the characters themselves have such detailed backstories right. and because they aren't really teenagers. Like, they've all lived for 35 years. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should transition over to the show since we keep now bringing it up. Yeah, okay, fair. You're safe now. Tell me what happened in the phone. What saved you? You won't believe me, but this was a sun summoner. Is this true? Can you summon light? She's real. Our enemies are threatened by your mere existence. The whole world will be after you. The prize is one million Kruger. Bring me Alina Starkov. Am I a prisoner? All of Ravka is. Until you and I enter the fold. And destroy it from within. So no pressure. Okay, so the TV show is obviously from 2021. 
So this was developed by Eric Heiser, and uh, there's some some pretty big names behind the scene, like Sean Levy is one of the executive producers, but it's got a cast of people that I don't really know. As always, when we're doing fantasy adaptations, for some reason, it just basically means that they're all British instead. Yeah. <laughs> Which I found very annoying this time. Why not have some of these people actually be Russian or I be Icelandic? I don't understand why they didn't have Russian and Icelandic accents and Dutch accents. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I was particularly frustrated with the very blandly generic hot actor who plays Matthias. Because yes. his accent is excruciating to listen to. Really, really, really unfortunate. <laughs> I really wanted a straight up Dutch Kez. I think that would have been great. But what do I know? Sorry, yeah. go on. Do your cast. All right. So we've got uh, Jesse May Lee as Alina. We've got Archie Renault as Mal. We've got Freddie Carter as Kaz. Amita Suman as Inej, who was easily my favorite character of the entire yeah. TV show. Uh Kate Young as Jesper, Ben Barnes is your kind of, I guess if we were going to say stunt casting, he's the biggest name in this cast because he's appeared in things like the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, okay. Uh, and then finally, as you said, Zoe Wanamaker as Begra. God, I love her so much. She's so good. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the big conceit, as we've obviously been alluding to, is that they are smashing together these two books. And I actually found that it didn't bother me too much in the early goings on when we've got all of the Alina and Mal and the Darkling stuff, and then we're cutting back and forth between our Ruffscallion crew of thieves with Kaz and Inej and Jesper, and they're trying to pull this heist to go and get her at the palace, and all of that kind of makes sense. And then we introduce Nina. No point. And have to follow Nina as she gets abducted by Matthias on this boat. And then they have to wander their way through some Nordic country. Like, it basically does the backstory that you get from Six of Crow. But it's the mm -hmm. only backstory that we get for all of these characters. Whereas in the book, we get Kaz's backstory. We get Inesha's backstory. We get a little bit of Jesper's backstory. And here, it just feels so extraneous because... Nina is introduced as she is abducted. She's meant to be a member of the team, and then she gets abducted, and they're kind of like, oh, I guess she's not here. We're going to have to go and do this heist without <laughs> her. And then we have to keep following her storyline, but it's never made evident why it matters. So you're just no. following this third storyline that we don't care about. Even though Danielle Galligan, I think, is hugely compelling and very winsome, I think she's great in this role. I could not care every time no. the Nina storyline came back. And I guess this is what I mean about the show feeling overstuffed or like there was too much going on. Like, I didn't need this Nina thing happening no. at all. Like, I don't no. understand how it fit in. And I think if it was me, you know, because I run everything, right. I think Shadow and Bone makes sense as a movie series, right? Like, you do a movie for each book, great. Right. Six of Crows makes sense as a TV series. Hmm. I don't understand. I really don't understand the combination of the two. I just... I won't say that I disliked it because I was glad to see Inej right. and especially Jesper, who's my favorite character. I was glad of to course. see him on screen. <laughs> okay. But I, I really just wanted, yeah, I don't know. Either give me what's good about Six of Crows mm -hmm. or... Or leave it to the side. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I found it confusing. And I found the first, I would say the first three episodes really hard to follow because I couldn't figure oh, yeah. out... How so the narratives were supposed to interact. And so mm -hmm. many characters. And even though we've already met them all in the books, it's still like you're trying to recontextualize them in this adaptation. Yeah. So, yeah. For me, it was too much. Oh, absolutely. So I was watching this with my husband because he loves fantasy. He loves magic. And... I had read most of Shadow and Bone at this point, and I think I had kind of tentatively dipped my foot into Six of Crows. So I at least had an idea of who the people were meant to be, even if I didn't know exactly where the journeys were going to go. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the first episode, I turned to him and said, so how was that for you as somebody who had no idea what the series was about or any of the characters haven't read either of these two books? And I mean, he's pretty adept at following these kinds of sprawling mythologies, but even he said, oh, yeah, this was a bit much. Like, it definitely mm -hmm. took us a couple of episodes to kind of figure things out, get into it. 
And I think part of the problem, too, with the show, it, it's an issue in the book, but if you're only reading them one at a time and not synchronously, then it's mm-hmm. not as much of an issue. In the TV show, you go into the fold, this thing happens, that's episode one, and then the very next episode, you're on the road, she's getting attacked by Fjordans, we're making our way to the little palace, like, you never have enough time to actually just relax and get to no. know who these characters are or what their relationship is. Like, it's not rocket science, so you can follow it, but the show is on the move so frequently that it's it's hard to feel like you are getting enough to make an emotional connection. I think that's why it really took until episode six. I would say it took until episode six for me to actually, like, invest and care Mm-hmm. Because I, re- I really struggled to put the pieces together and to stay conscious. Um, oh, yes. Uh, people who were following you on Instagram, it's like, I'm doing this instead of reading and watching Shadow <laughs> and Bone. I'm doing this instead of watching the show. I know. I know. I got a Julie Murphy advanced reading copy of the Second Faith book, like when I was supposed to be watching Shadow and Bone. Thankfully, I'd finished reading it. And I was like, see you in hell, Shadow and Bone. <laughs> That's not so realist. Dismissive. That's a superpower book. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> anyway, all this to say, I it did really finally click for me, but mm-hmm. it took until episode six for that. And I'm not that kind of watcher. If I wasn't watching it for this show, there's no way I would have given it six episodes, yeah. like not in a million years. Yeah, I think I probably would have stuck with it, but I'll confess until we got to the little palace and got Alina interacting with Jenya and getting a little bit of training, that's when it really started to feel appropriately YA to me because Mm -hmm. then we were getting, you know, oh, it's palace intrigue. Oh, we're actually getting a bit more of a sense of how the Grisha operate and even the fact that there are divisions between the Grisha who wear blue and the Grisha who wear red because they have very different powers that don't mix well. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a sucker for the class hierarchy and that sort of thing. So I did enjoy the palace intrigue. And like you, I think that's why Six of Crows would also work because really it's about infiltrating not just a high stakes prison palace, but you also have to deal with, ooh, and then we've got to meet at this bell, we've got to climb up that chute, we've got to also deal with that political figurehead that we thought was dead and this woman who's got jewels that we need to steal and so on. Like, Mm -hmm. there's just more fun machinations to work with, I think, in that story. So I... Yeah, you know, now that you're saying it, I do think Shadow and Bone, it would have been overstuffed movies, and I think the fans would have complained. But I also think by trying to shoehorn in potential future seasons with the Six of Crows crew, I think they've made it a bit needlessly complicated. Yeah, I think that's fair. The Six of Crows crew is just so much more fun, though. (laughs) Because they're actually having fun, right? Yeah. Sadly, Alina's story is one that's very morose and kind of mopey and lovesick, whereas the Six of Crows crew feels like a fantasy Ocean's Eleven thing. And there are love stories in Six of Crows, but they're they're ba- they're secondary to the heist, and they're mm-hmm. secondary to us getting to know the characters. And you know, the fact is too. The stakes are lower. They're not individually lower, right? Mm-hmm. Like for for Kaz, this is a make or break heist. He has to make this work. Right. But the world doesn't end, <laughs> right? And so for me, I guess, I don't know. I think part of it is it's hard to tell a chosen one narrative yeah. in a fresh new way because we've mm-hmm. seen so many of them. And, you know, the first few times the chosen one was a girl, that was enough, right? It was like, holy sure. crap, the chosen one's a girl. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but that has, in fact, now become the mainstay of YA fantasy. Oh, so for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I will say there were quite a few kind of delightful moments where it felt like because this is a Netflix show, they were able to not just ramp up some of the action, but make it a little bit more adult. Like, I was pleasantly surprised that one of the few sex scenes that we get in the Mm -hmm. series is a queer sex scene. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I liked that. I mean, that was sort of an interesting reveal in Six of Crows as well, like, I guess it's a queer secondary character moment, but that that kind of allowing for that space in this world, I thought Mm -hmm. was nicely done in Six of Crows in a way that I expect opens out more explicitly into the second book. But of course, I don't know that. Mm -hmm. 
(laughs) (laughs) And I never will. I'm kidding. I might actually read. I was going to say, you you suggested to me that you might read some more of these books, not just because we have now covered them on the pod. Yeah, no, I actually put the second Shadow and Bone on hold because I want to find out what happens. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And I think I will probably read the next... In the Six of Crows, which I can't remember, it's you'd expect it to be like Seven of Something, but it's not. It's the sequel's got a different name. Um, <laughs> Crooked Kingdom, Crooked Kingdom. I will at right. some point, I think, probably read that, although not soon, because it yeah, honestly it takes a lot. a lot to motivate me into five hundred pages of of anything. To be yeah, honest, yeah, I definitely felt that. I was reading Six of Crows under the wire, and I was having to get up early and stay up late just to make enough progress to meet this deadline for the recording, and. I enjoyed it, but all I could think of was, oh, if I didn't have to speed read through a lot of this, I think I would enjoy a lot of the backstories more. Because every time they kept going back and saying like, and this person's backstory, I'd say, can we just get to the heist? (laughs) There is, I think, another strategic reason for including Nina's story. And that is that Nina's story expands into a second duology after the Six of Crows Mm. duology called King of Scars. So. I suspect we're setting up for Nina's storyline to be the arc that carries us through many seasons of this show, if that's the case. Right. But yeah, there's still way too much time on it in this season. (laughs) It's just such a weird choice because I feel like they probably could have introduced this world and maybe sprinkled in the character Mm -hmm. introductions from Six of Crows and beyond, and then begin to flesh them out as you move forward. But I'm thinking if this had been a one season wonder and then got canceled, you would definitely look back on the Nina storyline and just wonder like, what the (laughs) Thankfully, we can reveal at this point, the series has already been renewed for a second season. So we will get to see more of all these characters. You literally can't miss it when you log into Netflix. It's like, yes, it has been given a second season. Another season is coming. (laughs) I'm like, I haven't finished this one yet. Too much pressure. (laughs) Enjoy it. Enjoy it more. (laughs) So much more Nina in season two. Oh my gosh, yeah. (laughs) Too funny. I write. I came off hard on this off the top, and it really is just because I do struggle with the genre. Like, Mm -hmm. And because I struggle with the genre, and I tend to find it easier to read than watch anything anyway, the two, the TV series had a lot going against it in the first place. But I do think Bardugo's trying to do some interesting things. And I think that if I were Hollywood, (laughs) I would be Mm -hmm. much more interested in exploring the heist and the friendship and that world. Mm -hmm. There's also something cool about the idea of a series where magic is in the background like you know how what's kind of cool about the mandalorian is that the force is a thing obviously but it's Mm -hmm. in the background it's not the solution to every single problem they get into like it is in star wars right i kind of love the idea of a series or a world where like the main protagonists don't have access to magic or have limited access to magic but they live within like a magical universe Mm. that to me is kind of cool that's kind of what i dig about kaz and the way he moves through space Yeah, yeah, they're touched by it, but they don't have immediate access to it. And you could quibble with the fact that, oh, Kaz and Inez should probably die, considering the kind of scraps that they get into. Yeah, yeah. And yet, I think that also helps when you get the eventual reveal that Jesper is actually a fabricator who doesn't self identify as a fabricator Mm -hmm. it almost makes it more powerful because you're not going into it being like oh they're all super powered yeah yeah that's exactly it it's it's sort of um like (sighs) i guess it comes down to that question of like what are the normal people doing in this world like Mm -hmm. that's what i'm always most interested in when we when we enter these kinds of fantasy spaces yeah but how do you sell and market a series or, or even a movie right i mean i think at the end of the day, I completely understand why they went with Shadow and Bone. Oh, yeah. 100%. As opposed to Six of Crows. But yeah, I'm with you that I do think the Six of Crows stuff is more interesting. And maybe that just speaks to the fact that we're also... Old. Well, I think more attracted to the moral complexities that yeah. come with characters who feel like they've lived more. Sometimes YA can feel very limiting in that regard. Can I ask you a question? I know we're getting to the end, but uh, I have a question about your thoughts on the casting of Mal. Okay, go for it. 
So there are moments when I think he's quite good, and there yes. are moments when he Seems looks like bad. a picture of a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, and there's moments when he feels very much. I kept thinking, like, have I seen this guy on Coronation Street before? He throws in <laughs> some very soap opera teenage boy performances. Yes. Against a cast that I think is largely quite strong. Like, I think in general, the casting is very good. But mm-hmm. I found Mal unpersuasive. And I was wondering what your feelings were on him. Uh, I couldn't tell if it was the character or the actor or a combination of mm. both. I'm inclined to think it's that last one. I do find him extremely unmemorable. Like he mm-hmm. and the actor who plays uh, Matthias. I was just like, yes. you're both just blandly attractive that's not enough for me anymore (laughs) i really struggled in the scene where they are come upon by the fearedens in the when they're camping in the winter in the woods Mm -hmm. there's three first army soldiers and the fearedens and i kept being confused about which first army soldiers were dead and which ones were alive Mm -hmm. because they all look alike and they all basically act alike yeah And I know that that tends to be a thing with YA films, like the casting of particularly the male protagonists tends to be a little generic. But I was, I guess I was surprised because you need a character who's going to carry, you know, consecutive seasons of the show. And I was Mm kind of surprised by the choice of him for that. Yeah, the blank slate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I honestly, I feel that way about Ben Barnes, too. I am kind of an on the record not a fan slash hater of Ben Barnes because I find Mm. him blandly attractive as well in a different Mm -hmm. kind of way. He's, you know, model-esque good looks. But I find that he just doesn't have the menace or the malice or even the presence to really deliver a compelling adversary in the show. And this is maybe one of his better performances for me, but I still find him kind of forgettable. I agree with you. And I'll tell you one scene that really capped that off for me is you know a scene that i loathed in the book it's well written i just hate the trope is when the darkling has alina in Mm -hmm. the closet or there's they're in some kind of classroom or something they're in some room Mm -hmm. and they're like about to have sex and he's got her pinned against the wall and she's like oh he's so strong and forceful like wow and it's the thing i hate most the men who almost kill me are the hottest Mm -hmm. but when you see that scene in the adaptation there's no menace at all which in some ways is a relief because there's just sort of a we don't have to deal with it but also okay so what we're meant to interpret this as romance well yeah exactly but there's also no chemistry between them either so it's like no chemistry at all it's very problematic (laughs) it's very interesting yeah it's both ben barnes and archie renault are they don't have a lot of gravitas between them no they're there they're there yeah that's it (laughs) so before we get to our ya bingo Mm -hmm. we should talk about the racism yeah yeah because this was something that fans immediately were not happy with and i didn't go down a rabbit hole or anything but i saw the creative team sort of try to justify by saying well this would exist in this world because there is a lot of discrimination against the shoe people but the show made the decision to deliberately introduce racism where there wasn't explicit racism in the books. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because when I read the books, I won't try to pretend it's a post-racial society by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that the notion of race shifts, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we have instead is that one's race is like access to magic or not, really. And where you live in society, that's where the discrimination kind of pivots. So like, mm-hmm. there is hardcore racism in Fearden, but it's not against the shoe, it's against the Grisha, right? Yes, yeah. And to me, that's really interesting, because anytime we try to have conversations about race in another context, like, it's supposed to be a learning moment, right? It's supposed mm-hmm. to be like, oh, we can transpose this conversation onto contemporary life, blah, blah, blah. Yes. I guess it almost seems like cheaper and easier to just be like oh and everybody's racist against the shoe instead and just have it be like a mapping of racism in our own society Mm -hmm. i guess my problem with it is that it's not consistent or well thought out in the series so it's like occasionally people will make comments to alina that she looks shoe and that she looks out of place and she shouldn't be here or that shoe aren't welcome here um 
but then also there are lots of times when she moves through space and those comments aren't made. And so yeah. it's not a consistent worldview the way the discrimination against Grisha in the books is a much more consistent worldview. Mm-hmm. So for me, that makes it less successful because it's just less, it's just less consistent and less persuasive. Yeah, I think that and then it's the fact that in the series, the shoe are not really present. Like no. we don't know where they're geographically located. We don't really see anyone else who looks I mean, Jesse May Lee is very obviously Asian. Mm-hmm. And we don't really see a lot of other Asian characters on the show. So mm-hmm. it feels like it's something get that gets referenced, but we don't understand where the racism comes from and as a result it actually took me out of the fantasy world and made it feel like oh we're making a commentary about how we've tried to do some uh, colorblind casting but we also now feel the need to speak to the fact that certain people may take issue with how diverse this cast is and most specifically our lead actress well and it's interesting because in other ways, this world is a lot less cosmopolitan. Like Ketterdam is a lot less cosmopolitan in the TV series mm-hmm. than it is in the in the book. Where I mean, Ketterdam just seems to be where everybody washes up from wherever. Yes, and so it's it's almost like let's have a, a woman of color as our main character. Let's make that a thing. Mm-hmm. But let's look at how basically the rest of the cast is white. The rest of the primary cast is white for the most part. And we've actually sort of stripped back some of the interrogation of the larger idea of systemic violence. I don't know. It just seems odd. It seems like they wanted to do it in a much more they straightforward way. They wanted to do it in way. a half-assed way. Yeah. 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 yeah it's half-assed. That's fair. It's half-assed. <laughs> well, and I think, I think that's one of the reasons why people really took issue with it. It's like, don't introduce this and then not really want to do anything with it. Yeah. Because it's fantasy. You could have kept it out and actually said, we're post-racial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's not realistic, but also instead you just do it as a half measure and it comes off really false to me. I think the other thing that we should probably note, Joe, a, a criticism that the books and the TV adaptation have come to is uh, Bardugo's sort of appropriation of various cultures to kind of make up her universe and particularly pick and mix (laughs) use of Russian history as a way to to set up the rules of this world. Right. I have to say, I don't know enough to pass comment or judgment, but it's certainly Mm -hmm. something that if people want to look up readings about, there's lots of people writing about, particularly lots of Russian critics writing about their concerns with the way Russian sort of folklore and history is used (laughs) in the series. And I suspect as we go forward, the same concerns may well be raised about the way Chinese culture gets used for the shoes culture, I suspect, because I'd be surprised if not, right? So, Unless they make a course correction now that they've got an additional season. Yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm always hopeful. I think that's the power of having, specifically with YA, where we have so much franchise-ready IP, and -hmm. it's going to be delivered in multiple installments, either movies or TV seasons. There's an opportunity to reflect on the criticisms and course correct before you make the next installment. So I really hope that they're paying attention to some of these criticisms because yeah there's a really significant opportunity to dig yourself deeper as you Mm -hmm. move ahead if you don't recognize what people are saying is not okay yeah yeah totally agree and it seems like too often that's the angle folks take Mm -hmm. so hopefully not in this case double down double down (laughs) (laughs) uh okay let's do ya bingo yes bingo not a good bingo. So I've complained about all the tropes, and now I have to prove it. <laughs> yeah, let's let's see. Let's see this bingo magically appear, Brenna. <laughs> God, I hope so. We're so due for a bingo. Okay, Um. so we have filmed in the territory now known as Canada. Yeah, Vancouver, represent. Mm-hmm. Woohoo. Definitely abuse, right? Oh, gosh, yes. Just a little bit. We've got a queer secondary character, for mm-hmm. sure, both in... Well, in Six of Crows and in the TV adaptation. Yes. We do have a good friendship. I actually quite like the childhood friendship between Alina and Mal. I think it's very sweet before it becomes sort of complicated and um, exhausting. Yeah. Okay. Alina's story is pretty clearly a rags to riches story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a chosen one. 
Oh, gosh, for sure. Yes. Yep. We got magic. Mm-hmm. We've got a road trip because the whole thing is about getting to the. Oh yeah, you're palace. right. <laughs> That's right, of course. Um, we've got an obvious Netflix connection. This is a Netflix series. For sure, for sure. Um, oh, there's no shortage of dead bodies. My God. Oh, man, Joe, I wish we hadn't taken CGI off the board because I haven't had a chance to complain about when the heads get cut off. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, yeah. Uh, I'm going to put in for hollow romance. Yeah. Particularly between Nina and... Matthias in this series it happens too quickly far too quickly for me and it doesn't feel authentic at all but you could also just read it as the forced kind of fake romance between the Darkling and Lena as well yeah no that's fair I think on both on both scores I think we could talk about the ableism in the book that um Kez finds himself sort of experiencing he he has to work so hard to hide his disability or to pretend that it doesn't affect him and we go through that whole i think very moving series of chapters towards the end of the book where he is in extreme pain but he feels like he can't mm-hmm. he can't let anybody know it because the rules of the world that he lives in don't allow for disability right him and anej were fantastically compelling characters Mm -hmm. that I really enjoyed getting to know in Six of Crows. Can I tell you, I said this too, but like I kept picturing Kaz as Hugh Laurie's House MD character, but in in like old timey times, kind of fits, kind of fits. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. Um, Except for the whole being an alleged teenager thing. Right. Well, speaking of that, should we say aged up? Because I'm pretty sure that none of these actors are 17 or 16 years old, particularly Nina, who is like a full-bodied woman. Yeah, no, definitely aged up. And I kind of dig that the series is like, doesn't matter, whatever. They're all clearly adults in the book. It's fine. It's Mm -hmm. fine. For for sure, for sure. Um, Um, Okay, so question. Can you find a perfect date anywhere in here? Well, I'm trying to think if the Darkling takes Alina anywhere, does anything with her that we could frame as perfect date. I mean, I did kind of see that moment where he first kisses her, particularly on the show, where he takes her to some kind of well or fountain, and he's kind of explaining his thought process, and then they share that first kiss. I did think that even though it's under false pretenses on his part, it feels like the perfect oh you're gonna be all right moment for olina i like that the other one that i would i would try to sell you on is in the orphanage flashback when they hide out from Mm. when they hide from the testing yeah absolutely and then we get the off-repeated iconic moment where they you know hold hands out in the field yeah okay well uh I'm going to also add borrowed time because this is a heist specifically in Six of Crows. But uh, that gives us a bingo, Brenna. Yes! Thank you, Leah Bardugo, for your overuse of tropes. Well, it didn't also (laughs) hurt to have an additional book. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Two books in eight hours and we finally made up a bingo. There we go. There we go, folks. This is all it takes. (laughs) (laughs) okay so brenna if people want to yell at you because they think that you're being too hard on fantasy yeah they they can (laughs) i'm on twitter at brenna c gray that's gray with an a Mm -hmm. and i am at b stole my remote that's the letter b and if you want to get both of us because you want to, I don't know, program the show, tell me what to watch, mm-hmm. make me like fantasy, right. uh, or make Joe go easier on me with the eight oh hours gosh. and the two books, um, <laughs> you can find us on hashtag HKHSPod or at HKHSPod on the Twitters. A reminder that we do still have a book club in the offering. We are reading Please Ignore Vera Dietz by mm-hmm. A.S. King. If you're reading along with us, you can always send something longer to HKHSPod hspod at gmail.com and let us know how you're getting along yes absolutely and Mm -hmm. brenna we've done this a little out of order so normally we would have done a minisode and then we would be doing this but we did this so now we have a minisode coming up and what are we Mm -hmm. covering i am really excited we're gonna watch a tv series called 20s it's originally a series that was aired on BET, but it's on CBC Gem if you're in Canada. And it's about uh, being in your 20s and trying to 
kind of get your life together in the backdrop of Hollywood. I've wanted to watch it for ages. I'm really excited to check it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there is one season, eight episodes, but they're short. So they're, uh, yeah. that's what we're going to be talking about next week. A little well, new A, to it. N-A. Yeah, it's definitely in the N.A. vein. But you know what? Six of Crows wasn't even YA. So like, it's all this good. This is true. This is true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. So until next time, folks, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.